Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. They're asking themselves for the anomalies, and they're saying qui bono. Qui bono. I think that's what I'm going to call the episode, qui bono. Yeah, who, who benefits? Okay. And that's the case when you're investigating anything, even a fraud, little fraud, or a murder, or anything. Who benefits? I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 42, Cui Bono. It was freezing cold outside in Toronto. It was the morning of December 15th, 2017, a Friday. There were inches of snow on the ground outside of Honey and Barry Sherman's home. Of course, it was the middle of winter in Canada. The trees in front of the elaborate, cream-colored two-story mansion were bare, but the sky was a clear, cerulean blue outside of 50 Old Colony Road in the posh York Mills neighborhood. On that morning, the Sherman's housekeeper arrived at 8.30. When she let herself in, she noticed something off. The Sherman's house alarm had been deactivated. She'd been working there for three years, and that was the first time that the alarm had been turned off when she arrived. She made a mental note of it, but once inside, the housekeeper got to it. The residence was the epitome of opulence. 12,000 square feet of gleaming surfaces high ceilinged chandeliers, a spotless decadence. There were a lot of rooms to keep tidy, and these days there was the added pressure because the house had recently been put up for sale to the tune of $5.4 million. And with an open house, there'd already been a lot more foot traffic through the billionaire's home. It was entirely possible that the house had been shown the night before, and that's why the security system had been deactivated, or any other number of reasons. Even with the house up for sale, there weren't any additional security protocols, even though the Shermans still occupied their primary residence, where they had lived for 32 years. The housekeeper knew that even though Honey and Barry Sherman were billionaires, they were extremely low-key, especially for the ultra-wealthy. Of course, they had that security system, but they didn't have a security entourage with bodyguards. It was just them. Honey was 70 and Barry 75. They had been married for nearly 50 years. They'd met in college. Honey was the daughter of Jewish Holocaust survivors. The couple had four adult children, a son and three daughters. And being in the thick of the winter with their house up for sale, Honey just couldn't wait for the holiday season. With the stress of selling their home that they were living in, she was looking forward to escaping to their Miami condo for the holidays. A much-needed change of scenery from freezing cold days in Canada, to sunshine and pink flamingos in Florida. Or at least Honey was excited. Even though Barry had officially retired from the day-to-day operations of running his multi-billion dollar business, Apotex, he still worked seven days a week and loved every minute of it. Basically, he lived to work. In terms of billionaire style, when it came to spending money on himself, Barry was the Canadian version of Warren Buffett. He would drive his sensible cars into the ground before begrudgingly buying a new one. Barry Sherman had founded the Toronto pharmaceutical giant called Apotex in 1974. 
And by 2017, he had grown the business to such a degree that he was the 12th richest person in Canada, amassing a vast fortune of more than $3 billion from the manufacture of generic drugs. Barry and Honey were also considered a power couple in the philanthropy world, considered among Canada's most generous philanthropists. The couple had donated millions across the city, from the United Jewish Appeal to the United Way. In fact, a charitable arm of Apotex had shipped millions of dollars worth of medicine to disaster zones. And when it came to personality, Honey was the yin to Barry's yang. Barry was reserved and obsessed with work. Honey was an outgoing social butterfly. A family member would describe Barry as brilliant, but lacking in emotional and social intelligence. Whereas Honey was described as smart, abrasive, high energy. But obviously they'd been able to make it work, and they each contributed to the relationship. But Barry was no pushover. If he wanted something, he would stop at nothing, or rather let nothing stop him from getting it. Barry was fond of saying he likes to do two he liked to do two things. He liked to make money and he liked to give it away. And they, he and his wife gave away hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to Jewish and non-Jewish causes. Uh, he was very generous to people, uh, many people that you know we'll never hear of that were, were uh, beneficiaries of, of little, little and big acts of kindness. That's Kevin Donovan, who knows a lot about the lives of Honey and Barry Sherman. I'm Kevin Donovan. I'm the chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star, uh, which is Canada's largest newspaper. According to Kevin, on that cold December 15th morning, as the housekeeper was cleaning the mansion, she hadn't seen Barry or Honey after she arrived at 8.30. But with such a huge house, that wasn't unusual. But what was sort of strange, if anyone had really been tracking, was that Honey and Barry hadn't been seen in the last 36 hours. Barry Sherman had not been at work the day before, on December 14th, a Thursday, which didn't raise alarm bells, but it was unusual for him. The real estate agent that Barry and Honey Sherman were working with had tried to call them, but hadn't gotten through. She had prospective buyers. They were interested in doing a walkthrough that morning. And though it was unusual that the real estate agent wasn't getting through to the couple, it hadn't set off any larger alarm bells. After all, the Shermans knew there was a lockbox on their door that real estate agents could use to show the home when they weren't available. The uh, realtor for Barry and Honey Sherman is uh, she's getting a little, little concerned because she's trying to show the house and, and has not been able to reach them. She arrives at the house on the Friday morning. She arrives with uh, an another agent and two clients. Uh, there's already a, a cleaning person in the house uh, just doing some routine uh, cleaning. And uh, the agent uh, takes them to the upstairs. It's a 12,000 square foot home. It's a pretty big place. So the real estate agent takes the prospective buyers throughout the house. Remember, it's 12,000 square feet. So there's a lot to ooh and ah over. But the real showstopper and what the real estate agent's been leading up to is the indoor swimming pool in the basement. That's the crown jewel of the place because she knows that's what these clients are most excited to see. Mm -hmm. 
The agent leads the group down the stairs into the basement, showing them the other rooms first. A photo of the hobby room had been included in the real estate marketing photo package that was publicly available. But seeing the hobby room with the two sculptures, a piece of art that the Shermans had collected, made quite an impression. The sculptures were definitely unique and made in the 1970s by a self-described junk sculptor named Leo Sewell. This artwork that I'll just I'll describe to you, which is in the room, uh, just one over from the swimming pool room, Barry and Honey did like uh, interesting art. They had purchased in the 70s, 1970s, two full-size sculptures. Um, they're made by a Philadelphia artist. They are made of garbage. They're they're quite artistic and beautiful. When I say garbage, they're discarded. Uh, best way to understand it is think of the femur of our leg. Well, the sculptors used the uh, part of a skateboard, a kid's skateboard, to to kind of form the femur. One is clearly male, one's female. They're in the Sherman's basement in a seated position. As the group leaves the hobby room, it's clear that the sculptures weren't to the prospective client's tastes, but finally, they were super excited to see the underground pool, which was. As they walk down the corridor, the agent tries to get ahead of some papers that she sees strewn on the floor. It's an immaculate home where nothing is out of place, so it's a bit odd but the agent does her best to move things along. This is about 11 o'clock in the morning now, and they walk down the stairs to the basement. The first thing she notices is a window that's open in the basement. Then she notices a door that's normally locked, which goes out to a patio on the west side of the house. Uh, it's unlocked. It's always locked when she's showing the house. And then she notices on the floor of a corridor that leads uh, to the swimming underground swimming pool, she notices some papers, which she recognizes as a home inspection report that Barry, her client, had said he was going to bring home to convince her that house was worth more than, than she was listing it for. Uh, some driving gloves, which are Barry's, and his Blackberry. She picks them up, puts them on a low wall that runs along the corridor. Barry and Honey's real estate agent continues down the hall. The door to the pool room is closed, and she turns the handle, pushing the door open. This is her coup de grace moment. The pool room. It's what the clients came for. Inside the pool room, even though it's mid-morning, the area is dim. In fact, the fluorescent lighting from the lights inside the pool give the room an sort of abandoned feeling. And the lights are all off, but she notices that the pool lighting, that sort of you know underwater lighting the pools have, and there's a, a pool cover on top, that one of those blue covers, and she sees in the distance, and when I say distance, it's 45 feet from where she's standing with the clients to a far railing at the other end. She sees what in the dim light looks to be Barry and Honey Sherman, and they're just uh, uh, in a seated position, and She's not sure what she's seeing. The others behind her stare at the Shermans in the distance. None of them are really fully getting what exactly they are looking at. In fact, the agent sort of blocks the door, and in that split second had to be running through a million different scenarios trying to process what she's seeing. To either go inside the pool room toward what, for all intents and purposes, appears to be Barry and Honey in a seated position by the pool, but it doesn't feel like a normal situation. 
The clients looked past the real estate agent, nervously made an unwittingly cruel and possibly prescient remark about the Sherman's taste in artwork, referring to those sculptures as if they were posing for their guests in some kind of fake murder pose, a sick prank. You can imagine this, the fear she would feel, but she's not sure what she's seeing. One of the Sherman kids is a yoga instructor and she was wondering, like, are Barry and Honey doing yoga? There's a, some odd statues in the another part of the basement and the clients had seen that and they said, oh, it must be some more weird art that they have. So the agent decides, well, let's, you know, let's go with that. And she gets them out, sends them on their way. The real estate agent was too terrified to go back down into the pool room to investigate. She tracked down the housekeeper, trying to explain to her what she saw. The fact that the housekeeper hadn't been down to the pool room that morning and that she hadn't seen or spoken to Honey or Barry either added to the worry. They obviously were concerned about the Shermans, but now the strewn paper, the Blackberry device, the open window, unlocked door, and the way that the Shermans were just sitting there, posed, not moving. It felt like something sinister had happened. And if something did happen to the Shermans, was the intruder still inside the home? I mean, it was entirely possible. There was so much more foot traffic going on inside of the mansion with the house up for sale. And the Shermans didn't have any bodyguards or extra security measures in place that would stop someone who wanted to come onto the property. They were also the kind of people known to answer the door and would offer to help someone in need. As the real estate agent and housekeeper were trying to figure out what to do next, another employee of the Shermans arrives at their home that morning. And when she was told about the Shermans, the way that they were seated by the pool, not moving, she decides that she will get to the bottom of it. So the woman creeps down to the basement, armed with a butter knife. She quietly opens the pool room door, creeps over to where the Shermans are sitting, fully clothed, on the deck of the pool in a seated position. She notices Barry's legs are outstretched with one crossed over the other. Undisturbed on the bridge of his nose are his eyeglasses. His jacket is pulled down off of his shoulders and then behind his back, effectively holding his arms at his sides. Honey's light coat is also pulled down off of her shoulders with her arms at her sides. Both Honey and Barry are side by side each has a belt looped around their neck that's tethered to the pool railing behind. And as she stands in front of Honey and Barry Sherman, and she sees the Shermans are dead. Now, I've seen the crime scene photos and our documentary as a recreation of them. And, and, you know, they're clearly dead. And they're sitting in a, they're in a reclining position. So their, their backsides are on the floor of the pool. Their backs are to the, the water of the pool but they're suspended by two men's leather belts, which are around their neck and tied very tightly to a low railing just above their heads. And, and but they're leaning back like this, that they're not in an upright position. And first thing that I noticed when I looked at the pictures is the, the weight of the belts is not on the front of the neck where, you know, strangulation would take place. It's on, it's just sort of looped around the back of the neck. We'll get into the specifics about the positions of the bodies in a bit. It's an important part of the investigation, especially when you take into consideration the two sculptures in the hobby room next door. The leg of the male 
sculpture is crossed over his other leg. When I saw that, that I had a visceral reaction to that because uh, Barry's legs are crossed a little bit differently, for sure. Uh, and it's unclear with, you know, after rigor mortis passes in and out of the body, how much Barry's the positioning of his legs would change. But uh, that seemed to me that somebody was, you know, either playing an awful joke or sending uh, a message uh, to, to, to somebody that this was a, a staging. And others more experienced than I have looked at that and just said it's clearly staged. I should also tell you that that Barry's uh, eyeglasses, which he wore all the time, are, are neatly, perfectly on his head, which if he had committed suicide and was you know, thrashing about, they wouldn't have stayed on. The Sherman's real estate agent would make a frantic 911 call at around 11.44 a.m., asking for help for a medical emergency, knowing that the Shermans were far past any possibility of resuscitation. But that emergency call would ignite one of the highest-profile homicide investigations in Toronto's history. When police arrived at the Sherman mansion, the cause of death wasn't clear at first glance. They could tell that the Shermans had been there long enough for rigor mortis to pass. And as police spoke to witnesses, it appeared that the last time the Shermans were seen alive was on Wednesday, December 13th, at around 5 p.m. The Shermans had a meeting at Barry's office at Apotex. Honey was there too, because they were discussing plans with the custom home builder and his team about the Shermans' brand new $20 million home that they were building. After this meeting, Honey would head home at around 5.30, but Barry would stay behind at work for a few more hours. At 6.21 that evening, Honey would make a five-minute call from her cell phone to a friend. This was the last time that family, friends, or business associates had heard from either Barry or Honey. The Shermans are last in alive uh, Wednesday, December 13th. Uh, of 2017. They just have a normal day. Yes, the house is for sale. Lots of people in the house uh, getting it ready because uh, it has just come on market. Uh, Barry is at his office. Uh, Honey is doing errands. And then they end up both back at, at their home. That's the last they're heard of. Uh, no email, no text communication at all from them. By early evening, News that two bodies had been found inside the Sherman residence had spread. The police hadn't said anything publicly, but the activity outside the couple's home was impossible to ignore. News media flocked to the scene, and a police spokesman, Constable David Hopkinson, would go outside and hold a news conference later that Friday evening. Uh, 911 call for a medical complaint. Uh, 3-2 response meeting. Police fire and ambulance show up. Our information was that there were two bodies discovered in a home here in the Bayview Avenue Colony Road area. Uh, when we got inside, we have found two bodies deceased there. He wouldn't identify who the two bodies were inside the Sherman's home. He would only say that the circumstances surrounding the deaths, quote, appear to be suspicious. He also said that they are not looking for any suspects, that there were no signs of forced entry, and that the deaths were not currently being treated as homicides. Police would later say again that Friday evening that they were not seeking any suspects, but that they were keeping an open mind. Detective Brandon Price would tell reporters, quote, we will be getting a lot more answers tomorrow. 
which would be a Saturday, following the postmortem examination, where the pathologist would find that the cause of death for both Honey and Barry was ligature neck compressions, which is a form of strangulation. But the manner of death, how they were strangled, was it murder or suicide, for example, was undetermined. In fact, by that Saturday, media outlets were reporting that sources within the Toronto Police Department were operating on the theory that Barry Sherman had killed his wife, Honey, and then hung himself. The family was devastated to hear not only that their parents had died, but they were stunned when they learned that the police's working theory was that Barry had murdered Honey and then killed himself. A statement was issued late Saturday on behalf of the Sherman's four adult children. They were very critical of the police. Quote, We are shocked and think it's irresponsible that police sources have reportedly advised the media of a theory which neither their family, their friends, nor their colleagues believe to be true. We urge the Toronto Police Service to conduct a thorough, intensive, and objective criminal investigation. The following day, Sunday, police would release a statement saying that the autopsies determined that the cause of death for both Barry and Honey Sherman was ligature neck compressions. The police statement did not elaborate beyond that wording. The idea that Barry had struck Honey in the face to subdue her before strangling her to death with a man's leather belt and that he then killed himself in a murder-suicide plot? Honey is the only one with any physical, uh, visible uh, ev evidence of being struck. She's struck below her right eye. This murder-suicide theory was confirmed when an affidavit for a search warrant named that only Honey was considered a murder victim, not her husband, Barry. According to Kevin's research, documents reveal that the Toronto police were suffering from tunnel vision. More seasoned homicide investigator assigned the case. She doesn't go to the crime scene uh, on the day the bodies are discovered. She doesn't go for four days. And of course, by that point, forensics have been through. There's really not much to see. The, the A-team, in my opinion, uh, the, and there is an A-team at the Toronto Homicide Squad, uh, did not get assigned this case. And, and that's really unfortunate. According to people who knew the couple, it was absolutely un- fathomable to believe that Barry had strangled Honey and then hung himself. But for the family, the children of Honey and Barry Sherman, they were outraged. They believed that their parents had been murdered. After all, the Shermans had been married over four decades. There was no history of abuse or violence. Disgusted with the Toronto police investigation, the Sherman family initiated its own private investigation. They hired their own forensic pathologist, Forensic pathologist would eventually, the second pathologist would eventually find that there's thin ligature marks under the belts, no ligatures found at the scene. So they were killed with something else and just staged with the belts and their hands are, are tied, had been tied together at one point, but untied and no ties were found at the scene. Pathologist, the police completely missed all these signs and it took a pathologist hired by the Sherman family to properly interpreted the scene. During that second autopsy, it was revealed that Barry, who mostly led a very sedentary life working, had very little muscle tissue, whereas Honey was very active. 
In fact, the morning that their bodies were discovered, Honey had an appointment with her personal trainer. The idea that Barry could somehow overpower Honey didn't even seem like it was physically possible. The second pathologist, hired by the family, would have the same cause of death as strangulation, but the manner of death was a double homicide. Which made more sense because Barry had a lot of enemies. As a billionaire titan of the pharmaceutical industry in the cutthroat business of generic drugs, Barry had made a lot of people angry. And yes, he was a well-known and well-respected philanthropist, but there was a duality to Barry. Earlier, Kevin described Barry as someone who loved making money and giving it away. But he also said it was Barry's way or the highway. He had an edge that definitely rubbed people the wrong way, especially if they got in the way of him making money. In fact, Barry was very well aware of his enemies. In hindsight, it seems horribly ironic that more than 20 years before he was found with his wife dead in that pool room, Barry Sherman would foretell his own murder. He was a tough guy in a tough business, and he was going to make his money. And he obviously made a lot of his And he said to me, um, I said, you, you've made a lot of enemies. And that's when he said, I'm surprised no one's knocked me off yet. That's Jeffrey. I've turned down so many of these because, again, I have no firsthand knowledge of, of the killing, but I've got thoughts. Exactly what I want to hear. So let me start off by saying, well, you start off by saying how your name and title and how you'd like me to refer to you in the podcast. Jeffrey Robinson, six foot one, blonde hair, blue eyes, cat-like movements. Oh my gosh, perfect. I love body, it. Body double for uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, that's great. I like him. We're we're gonna get along. As you can tell, Jeffrey's a bit of a character, and I want to be clear that he's very upfront that he doesn't have any inside knowledge of the Honey and Barry Sherman murder investigation. So the opinions expressed in this podcast are opinions, not facts. But again, when you do this kind of a thing and you look at it and what the police are saying, they understand that everybody they talk to is lying to them. They're asking themselves for the anomalies. And they're saying qui bono. Qui bono. I think that's what I'm going to call the episode. Qui bono. Yeah. Who, who benefits? Awesome. And that's the case when you're investigating anything, even a fraud, a little fraud, or a murder, or anything. Who benefits? What's interesting about Jeffrey is back in the 90s, for a moment in time, he was in Barry's orbit. He was writing a book on the pharmaceutical industry in Canada called Prescription Games, Money, Ego, Power, Inside the Pharmaceutical Industry. A deep dive look into the chicanery of Big Pharma. All sorts of crazy stuff that they do to keep prices high on drugs. And Jeffrey breaks down the complicated world of Big Pharma. Now, when Big Pharma develops a drug, it may take them nine years, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years from the point of getting the patent on the formula to going through all of the testing and requirements to get licensed by the FDA. So they've invested a billion or two billion and a patent's 18 years. So if, they've, if it's taken them 10 years, they only have eight years left to exploit that patent, which is why they're gonna sell this drug at $10 a pill to make back the money they've invested and then try and triple or quadruple or multiple their, their money by five, 10 or whatever. At the end of the 18 years, the patent expires and the bottom feeders move in. These are the generic guys who don't have to spend a nickel on development. They simply have to make sure that they can produce the proper formula 
and get it approved as a generic drug. And then they can sell this $10 drug for 50 cents. It's a cutthroat, very nasty industry. Jeffrey wanted to speak with Barry Sherman about a lot of topics, including his reputation for investing in businesses outside the pharmaceutical industry that many considered as dodgy. It's like he had this thing where he was also, he would give money to these failed businesses. Like generally it's, you know, like he had these kind of maybe not sketchy friends, but he, he invested in businesses that didn't lift. But the mafia guys did that too, you know, respect. I want I want respect and I'll take care of you. You come to me on, the, on my daughter's wedding, whatever that, you know. <laughs> so you feel like he was helping out these friends because he, because that kind of go, goes in the face. He was helping out the friends because he thought he could make money. Now, this helping out the friends becomes an important part of the story. So he could make money and then they would owe him. This was a guy who, who I suspect weighed everything transactionally. Even Barry's philanthropy was under scrutiny before his murder. It was alleged that he'd been making large donations to foundations that he set up in his or his company's name, which he then used to take enormous tax breaks. In fact, there were also rumors that Barry was murdered because of the way he ran his company, that Barry was the target of a murder-for-hire plot by a rival pharmaceutical company, and that Honey was collateral damage. There were just so many threads to pull in Barry Sherman's business and personal life. The fact that he would sue anyone who challenged what he wanted to accomplish in business even extended to his own family. Jeffrey says the only reason that he was even able to get an interview with Barry Sherman was because he was trying to do damage control regarding one of these lawsuits. Apotex was out in a kind of an industrial estate. It was, a, as I remember, a one a single-story building big with a lot of lawn and other buildings. And, and the receptionist said, yes, just go into the uh, conference room and he'll be right with you. And I did. And I, he walked in with another guy, six foot one. And he introduced me to his friend, Bruce, who was chief of security. And this was Barry's way of saying, don't fool around with me because I've got muscle. I mean, that's the kind of a guy he was. How did you get in the room? I mean, not to say that your illustrious career obviously got you in, but like, what was your... He did, what happened was he did one with uh, Leslie Stolitz at uh, 60 Minutes, and he was angry. It did not go well, because Leslie's a professional journalist, and she's not there to do his PR. And he gave her BS, and she called him out on it. Jeffrey is referring to the 60 Minutes segment that aired on December 19, 1999, called The Secrecy Clause which featured a story where Barry Sherman's company, Apotex, threatened to sue Dr. Nancy Oliveri over her concerns about the safety of a generic drug made by Apotex that she was studying in a clinical trial. When she tried to warn her patients, she was reminded of the NDA that she'd signed with Apotex that put her at risk of being sued. People shouldn't suffer because I'm stupid enough to sign a contract with this company. They have to know the allegations by Dr. Oliveri are false from top to bottom. Barry Sherman is Apotex's CEO and chairman of the board. At no time was she told by anyone not to say whatever she thought was appropriate to any patient. We went to her colleague, mm -hmm. Dr. Gary Brittenham, mm -hmm. and he told us that he was in the room with her mm -hmm. when a senior vice president from Apotex told them both not to tell the patient. Well, it's not true. And we have a letter. Okay, let's see. We showed him a letter from Apotex Vice President Mike Spino 
Since we did not concur with her assessment of the drug's effectiveness, we could not allow such information to be transmitted to patients. Jeffrey believes that he was granted an interview with Barry Sherman that day because he was trying to restore Apotex's reputation. So he thought, well, I'll get this guy to write the, you know, make it right for me. Well, he barking up the wrong tree. I'm not going to be intimidated by him or his goon or anybody else. <clears throat> anyway, so he consented to do it. I mean, he was writing a book that was going to be published in Canada. And I think he knew that if he didn't control at least some of the information, it wasn't going to look good. But during the interview, something unexpected happened. And Barry would tell Jeffrey something haunting. First, he acknowledged that he had a lot of enemies because of the way he conducted his business and how his competition wasn't happy about his use of drug patents to his advantage in making generics. He would tell Jeffrey, quote, The branded drug companies hate us. They have private investigators on us all the time. The thought once came to my mind, why didn't they just hire someone to knock me off? I said, you, you've made a lot of enemies. And that's when he said, I'm surprised no one's knocked me off yet. I understood why. I mean, I'd seen the guy. I understood why. He had a lot of enemies. And he was in this rough and ready bottom feeder builders, a business where he was taking other people's patents legally and uh, making a lot of money off, their, off of their work and then lying and cheating about his own stuff with this Toronto doctor. And I mean, this was this was not somebody who was going to ever become my new best friend. He was just a tough son of a bitch. After the interview, Jeffrey would go on to write his book and he moved on. But then in 2017, when he heard the shocking news of Barry and Honey Sherman's deaths, he instantly recalled what Barry had told him so many years ago in that interview. And his first thought as a longtime investigative reporter was cui bono, Latin for who benefits. Next time on part two of Cui Bono. Publicly, police said they weren't looking for a suspect after the bodies of Barry and Sherman were found. But was that really true? What do you think of the cops? I mean, it just seems premature for them to have come out of the gate and say we're not looking for a suspect and also that they potentially think, I mean, this does not look like a murder-suicide. No, I don't believe, no. First of all, the initial reaction might have been the Toronto police Homicide Squad says, oh, well, you know, high profile, okay, but it looks like a murder-suicide. And then the, the big kids come in and decide it's not. I don't believe the newspaper statements from, you know, inside sources tell us we're not looking for a suspect. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. I know, but why would they say that when they know maybe, it's going to be a high profile? Maybe they didn't say that. Maybe they didn't say that. This is a very high profile case. The stakes just couldn't be higher in this case, especially when information would come to light that would shake up this investigation, where the previously tight-lipped Toronto police, who appeared hyper-focused on the murder-suicide plot, would soon be singing a different tune. Over the period of the next week or so, I mean, these autopsies have been done, he's got the information and, and he passes it on to me. What's interesting to me though, and I write a story about it and that causes the police to have a press conference and change their mind and, and say it's a double murder, but the Sherman family, they had this information long before I came along and they didn't give it to the police. And that to this day, I find very surprising. Why, why did it take a reporter to put this on the front page of a newspaper? Why didn't they just pass this on? And I don't know the answer to that one. It's very suspicious to me. 
Before I let you go, I wanted to thank the guests on the show, Jeffrey Robinson for his insights, as well as Kevin Donnelly, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. He's also written a book, The Billionaire Murders, and has a recently released podcast and documentary under the same name. And don't forget to check out our bonus episode on the case available right now. Each week, Murder Chronicles producer Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.